Book One, Chapter Nine of *The Mill on the Floss*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy Fifty Five. *The Mill on the Floss* by George Eliot. Book One, Boy and Girl. Chapter Nine, to Garwin First. While the possible troubles of Maggie's future were occupying her father's mind, she herself was tasting only the bitterness of the present. Childhood has no forebodings, but then, it is soothed by no memories of outlived sorrow. The fact was, the day had begun ill with Maggie. The pleasure of having Lucy to look at, and the prospect of the afternoon visit to Garwin Furs, where she would hear Uncle Poulet's musical box, had been married as early as eleven o'clock by the advent of the hairdresser from St. Org's, who had spoken in the severest terms of the condition in which he had found her hair, holding up one jagged lock after another and saying, See here, tut 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 in a tone of mingled disgust and pity, which to Maggie's imagination was equivalent to the strongest expression of public opinion. Mr. Rapid, the hairdresser, with his well-anointed coronal locks tending wavily upward, like the stimulated pyramid of flame on a monumental urn, seemed to her at that moment the most formidable of her contemporaries into whose street at St. Org's she would carefully refrain from entering through the rest of her life. Moreover, the preparation for a visit being always a serious affair in the Dodson's family, Martha was enjoined to have Mrs. Tulliver's room ready an hour earlier than usual, that the laying out the best clothes might not be deferred till the last moment, as was sometimes the case and families of laxed views, where the ribbon strings were never rolled up, where there was little or no wrapping in silver paper, and where the sense that the Sunday clothes could be got at quite easily produced no shock to the mind. Already at twelve o'clock, Miss Tulliver had on her visiting costume, with a protective apparatus of brown holland as if she had been a piece of satin furniture in danger of flies. Maggie's was frowning and twisting her shoulders that she might, if possible, shrink away from the prickless of Tucker's, while her mother was remonstrating, Don't, Maggie, my dear, don't make yourself so ugly. And Tom's cheeks were looking particularly brilliant as a relief to his best blue suit, which he wore with becoming calmness having, after a little wrangling, affected what was always the one point of interest to him in his toilet. He had transferred all the contents of his everyday pockets to those actually in wear. As for Lucy, she was just as pretty and neat as she had been yesterday. No accidents ever happened to her clothes, and she was never comfortable uncomfortable in them so that she looked with wondering pity at Maggie, pouting and writhing, 
under the exasperating tucker. Maggie would certainly have torn it off if she had not been checked by the remembrance of her recent humiliation about her hair. As it was, she confined herself to fretting and twisting and behaving peevishly about the card houses which they were allowed to build till dinner, as a suitable amusement for boys and girls in their best clothes. Tom could build perfect pyramid of houses, but Maggie's would never bear the laying on the roof. It was always so with the things that Maggie made, and Tom had deduced the conclusion that no girls could ever make anything. But it happened that Lucy proved wonderfully clever at building. She handled the cards so lightly and moved so gently that Tom condescended to admire her houses as well as his own, the more readily because she had asked him to teach her. Maggie, too, would have admired Lucy's houses and would have given up her own unsuccessful building to contemplate them without ill temper if her tucker had not made her peevish and if Tom had not inconsiderately laughed when her houses fell, and told her she was a stupid. Don't laugh at me, Tom, she burst out angrily. I am not a stupid. I know a great many things you don't. Oh, I dare say, Miss Fitfire. I've never be such a cross as you, making faces like that. Lucy doesn't do it. I like Lucy better than you. I wish Lucy was my sister. Then it's very wicked and cruel of you to wish so, said Maggie, starting up hurriedly from her place on the floor and upsetting Tom's wonderful pagoda. She really did not mean it, but the circumstantial evidence was against her, and Tom turned white with anger, but said nothing. He would have struck her, only he knew it was cowardly to strike a girl and Tom Tolliver was quite determined he would never do anything cowardly. Maggie stood in dismay and terror while Tom got up from the floor and walked away, pale from the scattered ruins of his pagoda, and Lucy looked on mutely, like a kitten pausing from his lapping. Oh, Tom, said Maggie at last, going halfway toward him, I didn't mean to knock him down, indeed, indeed I didn't. Tom took no notice of her, but took instead two or three hard peas out of his pocket and shot them with his thumbnail against the window, vaguely at first, but presently with the distinct aim of hitting a superannuated blue bottle which was exposing its imbecility in the spring sunshine, clearly against the views of nature, who had provided Tom and the peas for the speedy destruction of this weak individual. Thus the morning had been made heavy to Maggie, and Tom's persistent coldness to her all through their walk spoiled the fresh air and sunshine for her. He called Lucy to look at the half-built bird's nest, without caring to show it to Maggie, and peeled a willow switch for Lucy and himself without offering one to Maggie. Lucy had said, Maggie, shouldn't you like one? but Tom was deaf. Still, the sight of the peacock opportunely spreading his tail on the stockyard wall just as they reached Garvin Firs was enough to divert the mind temporarily from her personal grievances. 
and this was only the beginning of beautiful sights at Garwin Firs. All the farmyard life was wonderful there. Battens, speckled and top-knotted, Friesland hens with their feathers all turned the wrong way, guinea fowls that flew and screamed and dropped their pretty spotted feathers, poulter pigeons and a tame magpie, nay, a goat, and a wonderful brittle dog, half mastiff, half bulldog, as large as a lion. Then there were white railings and white gates all about, and glittering weathercocks of various design, and garden walks paved with pebbles in beautiful patterns. Nothing was quite common at Garwin Firs, and Tom thought that the unusual side of the toads there was simply due to the general unusualness which characterized Uncle Poulet's possessions as a gentleman farmer. Toads who paid rent were naturally leaner. As for the house, it was not less remarkable. It had a receding center and two wings with battlemented turrets and was covered with glittering white stucco. Uncle Poulet had seen the expected party approaching from the window and made haste to unbar and unchain the front door kept always in this fortified condition from fear of tramps who might be supposed to know the glass case of stuffed birds in the hall and to contemplate rushing in and carrying it away on their heads aunt poulette too appeared at the doorway and as soon as her sister was within hearing said stop the children for god's sake bessie don't let em come up the door steps Sally's bringing the old mat and the duster to rub their shoes. Miss Poulette's front door mats were by no means intended to wipe shoes on. The very scrapper had a deputy to do its dirty work. Tom rebelled particularly against this shoe wiping, which he always considered in the light of an indignity to his sex. He felt it as the beginning of the disagreeables incident to a visit at Aunt Poulette's where he had once been compelled to sit with towels wrapped around his boots, a fact which may serve to correct the too hasty conclusion that a visit to Garwin Furs must have been a great treat to a young gentleman fond of animals. Fond, that is, of throwing stones at him. The next disagreeable was confined to his feminine companions. It was the mounting of the polished oak stairs, which had very handsome carpets rolled up and laid by in a separate bedroom, so that the ascent to these glossy steps might have served, in barbarous times, as a tribe or ordeal from which none but the most come off with unbroken limbs. Sophie's weakness about these polished stairs was always a subject of bitter ministrance, on Mrs. Cleague's part, and should in no comment, only thinking to herself if and the children were safe on the landing. Mrs. Gray has sent home my new bonnet, Bessie, said Mrs. Poulet in a pathetic tone as Mrs. Tulliver adjusted her cap. Has she, sister? said Mrs. Tulliver with an air of much interest, and how do you like it? 
It's apt to make a mess with clothes, taking them out and putting them in again, said Mrs. Poulet, drawing a bunch of keys from her pocket and looking at them earnestly. But it ud be a pity for you to go away without seeing it. There's no knowing what may happen. Mrs. Poulet shook her head slowly at this last serious consideration, which determined to her to single out a particular key. I'm afraid it'll be troublesome to you getting it out, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver, but I should like to see what sort of a crown she's made you. Mrs. Poulet rose with a melancholy air and unlocked one wing of a very bright wardrobe where you may have hastily supposed she would find a new bonnet. Not at all. Such a supposition could only have arisen from a too superficial acquaintance with the habits of the Dobson family. In this wardrobe, Miss Poulet was seeking something small enough to be hidden among layers of linen. It was a door key. You must come with me into the best room, said Mrs. Poulet. May the children come too, sister? inquired Mrs. Tulliver, who saw that Maggie and Lucy was looking rather eager. Well, said Aunt Poulet reflectively, it'll perhaps be safer for them to come. They'll be touching something if we leave them behind. So they went in procession along the bright and slippery corridor, dimly lighted by the similar lunar top of the window which rose above the closed shutter. It was really quite solemn. Aunt Poulet paused and unlocked a door which opened on something still more solemn than the passage, a darkened room, in which the outer light, entering feebly, showed what looked like the corpses of furniture and white shrouds. Everything that was not shrouded stood with its legs upward. Lucy laid hold of Maggie's flock, and Maggie's heart beat rapidly. Aunt Poulette half opened the shutter and then unlocked the wardrobe with a melancholy of deliberateness which was quite in keeping with the funeral solemnity of the scene. The delicious scent of rose leaves that issued from the wardrobe made the process of taking out sheet after sheet of silver paper quite pleasant to assist at. Though the sight of the bonnet at last was an anticlimax to Maggie, who would have preferred something more strikingly preternatural, but few things could have been more impressive to Mrs. Tulliver. She looked all round it in silence for some moments and then said emphatically well sister i'll never speak against the full crowns again it was a great concession and mrs poulet felt it she felt something was due to it you'll like to see it on sister she said sadly i opened the shutter a bit further well if you don't mind taking off your cap, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver. Mrs. Poulet took off her cap, displaying the brown silk scalp with a jutting promontory of curls, which was common to the more mature and judicious woman of those times, and placing the bonnet on her head, 
turned slowly round like a dapperous lay figure that Mrs. Tulliver might miss no point of view. I've sometimes thought there's a loop too much or ribbon on this left side, sister. What do you think? said Mrs. Poulet. Mrs. Tulliver looked earnestly at the point indicated and turned her head on one side. Well, I think it's best as it is. If you meddle with it, sister, you might repent. That's true, said Aunt Paulette, taking off the bonnet and looking at it contemplatively. How much might she charge you for that bonnet, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver, whose mind was actively engaged in the possibility of getting a humble imitation of this chef de l'or made from a piece of silk she had at home. Mrs. Poulette screwed up her mouth and shook her head and then whispered, Poulette pays for it. He said I was to have the best bonnet at Garland Church. Let the next best be whose it would. She began slowly to adjust the trimmings in preparation for returning it to its place in the wardrobe, and her thoughts seemed to have taken a melancholy turn, for she shook her head. Ah, she said at last, I may never wear it twice, sister, who knows? Don't talk of that, old sister, answered Mrs. Tulliver. I hope you'll have your health this summer. Ah, but there may come a death in the family, as there did soon after I had my green satin bonnet. Cousin Abbott may go, and we can't think of wearing crepe less nor half a year for him. That would be unlucky, said Mrs. Tulliver, entering thoroughly into the possibility of an inopportune decease. There's never so much pleasure I wear in a bonnet the second year, especially when the crowns are so chancy. Never two summers alike. Ah, it's the way I this world, said Mrs. Poulet, returning the bonnet to the wardrobe and locking it up. She maintained a silence characterized by head shaking until they had all issued from the solemn chamber and were in her own room again. Then began to cry. She said, Sister, if you should never see that bonnet again till I'm dead and gone, you'll remember I showed it you this day. Mrs. Tulliver felt that she ought to be affected, but she was a woman of sparse tears, stout and healthy. She couldn't cry so much as her sister Poulette did, and had often felt her deficiency at funerals. Her effort to bring tears into her eyes issued in an odd contradiction of her face. Maggie, looking attentively, felt that there was some painful mystery about her aunt's bonnet, which she was considered too young to understand, indignantly conscious all the while that she could have understood that as well as everything else if she had been taken into confidence when they went down uncle Poulet observed with some acumen that he reckoned the missus had been showing her bonnet that was what had made them so long upstairs with tom the interval had seemed still longer for he had been seated in irksome constraint on the edge of a sofa directly opposite his uncle Poulet, who regarded him with twinkling gray eyes and occasionally addressed him as young sir well young sir what do you learn at school was a standing question with uncle Poulet. whereupon tom always looked sheepish 
rubbed his hands across his face and answered, I don't know. It was altogether so embarrassing to be seated at the table with Uncle Poulet that Tom could not even look at the prints on the wall or the fly cages or the wonderful flower pots. He saw nothing but his uncle's gaiters. Not that Tom was in awe of his uncle's mental superiority. Indeed, he had made up his mind that he didn't want to be a gentleman farmer, because he shouldn't like to be such a thin-legged, silly fellow as his uncle Poulet, a Molly Cottle, in fact. A boy's sheep sheepishness is by no means a sign of overmastering reverence, and while you are making encouraging advances to him under the idea that he is overwhelmed by a sense of your age and wisdom, ten to one he is thinking you extremely queer. The only consolation I can suggest to you is that the Greek boys probably thought the same of Aristotle. It is only when you have mastered a restive horse, or thrashed a dray man, or have got a gun in your hand, that these shy juniors feel you to be a truly admirable and enviable character. At least I am quite sure of Tom Tolliver's sentiments on these points. In very tender years, when he still wore a lace border under his outdoor cap, he was often observing people observe peeping through the bars of a gate and making minatory gestures with a small forefinger while he scolded the sheep with an inarticulate blur, intended to strike terror into their astonished minds, indicating thus early that desire for mastery over the inferior animals wild and domestic, including cockchaffers, neighbors' dogs, and small sisters, which in all ages has been an attribute of so much promise for the fortunes of our race. Now Mr. Poulet never rode anything taller than a low pony, and was the least predatory of men, considering a firearms dangerous, as apt to go off of themselves by nobody's particular desire. So that Tom was not without strong reasons when, in confidential talk with a chum, he had described Uncle Poulet as a nincompoop, taking care at the same time to observe that he was a very rich fellow. The only alleviating circumstance in a tete-a-tete -tete with Uncle Poulet was that he kept a variety of lozenges and peppermint drops about his person, and when at a loss for conversation, he filled up the void by proposing a mutual solace of this kind. Do you like peppermints, young sir? required only the a taxal answer when it was accompanied by a presentation of the article in question. The appearance of the little girl suggested to Uncle Paulette the further solace of small sweet cakes of which he also kept a stock under lock and key for his own private eating on wet days. But the three children had no sooner got the tempting delicacy between their fingers that Aunt Poulette desired them to abstain from eating it till the tray and the plates came. Since with these crisp cakes they would make the floor all over crumbs, Lucy didn't mind that much, for the cake was so pretty she thought it was rather a pity to eat it. 
but Tom, watching his opportunity while the elders were talking, hastily stowed it in his mouth at two bites and chewed it furtively. As for Maggie, becoming fascinated, as usual, by a print of Ulysses and Naxica, which Uncle Paulette had brought as a pretty scripture thing, she presently let fall her cake and in an unlucky movement crushed it beneath her foot a source of so much agitation to aunt paulette and conscious disgrace to maggie that she began to despair of hearing the musical snuff-box to-day till after some reflection it occurred to her that lucy was in high favor enough to venture on asking for a tune so she whispered to lucy and lucy who always did what she was desired to do, went up quietly to her uncle's knee and blushed all over her neck while she fingered her necklace, said, Will you please play us a tune, uncle? Lucy thought it was by reason of some exceptional talent in Uncle Paulette that the snuff-box played such beautiful tunes and indeed the thing was viewed in that light by the majority of his neighbors in Garum. Mr. Paulette had brought the box to begin with, and he understood winding it up and knew which tune it was good to play beforehand. Altogether the possession of this unique piece of music was a proof that Mr. Paulette's character was not of that entire nihility which might otherwise have been attributed to it, but Uncle Poulet, when entreated to exhibit his accomplishment, never deprecated it by a too ready consent. We'll see about it, was the answer he always gave, carefully abstaining from any sign of compliance till a suitable number of minutes had passed. Uncle Poulet had a program for all great social occasions and in this way fenced himself in from much painful confusion and perplexing freedom of will. Perhaps the suspense did heighten Maggie's enjoyment when the fairy tune began. For the first time, she quite forgot that she had a load on her mind, that Tom was angry with her, and by the time Hush Ye Pretty Wobbling Choir had been played, her face wore that bright look of happiness while she sat immovable with her hands clasped, which sometimes confronted her mother with the sense that Maggie could look pretty now and then, in spite of her brown skin. But when the music, magic music ceased, she jumped up and running toward Tom, put her arm around his neck and said, Oh, Tom, isn't it pretty? Least you should think it showed a revolting insensibility in Tom that he felt any new anger toward Maggie, for this uncalled for and, to him, inexplicable caress, I must tell you that he had his glass of cowslip wine in his hand, and that she jerked him so as to make him spill half of it. He must have been an extreme milksop, not to say angrily look there now especially when his resentment was sanctioned as it was by general disappropriation of maggie's behavior why don't you sit still maggie her mother said peevishly little jails mustn't come to see me if they behave in that way said aunt Poulette. why 
You are too rough, little miss, said Uncle Pullet. Poor Maggie sat down again, with the music all chased out of her soul, and the seven small demons all in again. Mrs. Tulliver, foreseeing nothing but misbehavior while the children remained indoors, took an early opportunity of suggesting that, now they were rested after their walk, they might go and play outdoors, and Aunt Paulette gave permission, only enjoining them not to go off the paved walks in the garden, and if they wanted to see the poultry fed, to view them from a distance on the horse block a restriction which had been imposed ever since Tom had been found guilty of running after the peacock with an oscillatory ideal that fright would make one of his feathers drop off. Mrs. Tulliver's thoughts had been temporarily diverted from the quarrel with Mrs. Clegg by millinery and maternal cares, but now the great theme of the bonnet was thrown into perspective and the children were out of the way yesterday's anxieties recurred it weighs on my mind so as never was she said in a way of opening the subject sister Clegg's leaving the house in that way i'm sure i no wish to offend a sister ah said aunt Paulette, there's no accounting for what jane will do i wouldn't speak of it out of the family if it wasn't to Dr. Turnbull, but it's my belief Jane lives too low. I've said so to Paulette often and often, and he knows it. Why, you said so last Monday was a week, when we came away from drinking tea with him, said Mr. Paulette, beginning to nurse his knee and shelter it with his pocket handkerchief, as was his way when the conversation took an interesting turn. Very like I did, said Mrs. Poulet, for you remember when I said things better than I can remember myself. He's got a wonderful memory, Paulette has, she continued, looking pathetically at her sister. I should be poorly off if he was to have a stroke, for he always remembers when I've got to take my doctor's stuff, and I'm taking three sorts now. There's the pills as before every other night, and the new drops at eleven and four, and the fluorescence mixture, when agreeable, rehearsed Mr. Poulet, with a punctuation determined by a lozenge on his tongue. Ah, uh, perhaps it'll be better for Sister Clegg if she go to the doctor sometimes, instead of chewing turkey rhubarb, Whenever there's anything the matter with her, said Mrs. Tulliver, who naturally saw the wide subject of medicine chiefly in relation to Mrs. Clegg. It's dreadful to think on, said Aunt Poulette, raising her hands and letting them fall again. People paying with their own insides in that way, and it's flying out of the face of providence. For what are the doctors for, if we ought to call them in? And when folks have got the money to pay for a doctor, it isn't respectable. As I've told Jane many a time, I'm ashamed of acquaintance knowing it. Well, we've no call to be ashamed, said Mr. Poulet, for Dr. Turnbull has gotten such 
another patient as you I, this parish. Now old Miss Sutton's gone. Paulette keeps all my physic bottles. Did you know, Bessie? said Mrs. Paulette. He won't have one sold. He says it's nothing but right folks should see him when I'm gone. They'll fill two old the long storeroom shelves already, but, she added, beginning to cry a little, it's well if they ever fill three. I may go before I've made up the dozen of these last sizes. The pill boxes are in the closet in my room. You'll remember that, sister. But there's nothing to show for the blouses, if it isn't the bills. Don't talk, oh, you're going, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver. I should have nobody to stand between me and Sister Clegg if you was gone. And there's nobody but you can get her to make it up with Mr. Tulliver. For Sister Deanie's never on my side, and if she was, it's not to be looked for as she can speak like them as have got an independent fortune. Well, your husband is... Awkward, you know, Bessie," said Mrs. Pullet, good-naturedly, ready to use her deep depression on her sister's account as well as her own. He's never behaved quite so pretty to our family as he should do, and the children take after him. The boy's very mischievous and runs away from his aunts and uncles, and the jail's rude and brown. It's your bad luck, and I'm sorry for you, Bessie. For you was always my favorite sister, and we always liked the same patterns. I know Tulliver's hasty and says odd things, said Mrs. Tulliver, wiping away one small tear from the corner of her eye. But I'm sure he's never been the man since he married me to object to my making the friends on my side of the family welcome to the house. I don't want to make the worst of you, Bessie, said Mrs. Poulet compassionately, for I doubt you'll have trouble enough without that. And your husband's got that poor sister and her children hanging on him, and so given to lawing, they say, I doubt he'll leave you poorly off when he dies, not as I have it said out of the family. This view of her position was naturally far from cheering to Mrs. Tolliver. Her imagination was not easily acted on, but she could not help thinking that her case was a hard one, since it appeared that other people thought it hard. I'm sure, sister, I can't help myself, she said, urged by the fear, lest her anticipated misfortunes might be held rebutive, to take comprehensive review of her past conduct. There's no woman strives more for her children and I'm sure at scouting time, this lady day, as I've had all the bed hangings taken down, I did as much as the two jails put together. And there's the last elder flower wine I've made. Beautiful. I've always offered it along with the sherry. Though Sister Clegg will have it, I'm so extravagant. And as for liking to have my clothes tidy, and not go a fright about the house. There's nobody in the parish can say anything against me in respect or backbiting and making mischief. For I don't wish anybody any harm, and nobody loses 
by sending me a pork pie, for my pies are fit to show with the best of my neighbors, and linen so in order as if I was to die tomorrow, I shouldn't be ashamed. A woman can do no more nor she can. But it's all oh no use, you know, Bessie, said Mrs. Pullett, holding her head on one side and fixing her eyes pathetically on her sister. If your husband makes away of all his money, not but what if you was sold up and other folks bought your furniture. It's a comfort to think as you've kept it well rubbed. And there's the linen with your maiden mark on it. Might go all over the country. It'll be a sad pity for our family, Miss Pullet shook her head slowly. But what can I do, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver. Mr. Tulliver's not a man to be dictated to. Not if I was to go to the parson and get by heart what I should tell my husband for the best. And I'm sure I don't pretend to know anything about putting out money and all of that. I could never see into men's businesses as Sister Clegg does. Well, you are like me in that way, Bessie, said Mrs. Paulette, and I think it'll be a deal more becoming of Jane if she have their pier glass rubbed often. There was ever so many spots on it last week. Instead of a dictating to folks as have more comings in than she ever had, and telling them what they're to do with their money. But Jane and me were always contrary. She would have stripped things, and I like spots. You like a spot too, Bessie. We always hung together in that. Yes, Sophie, said Mrs. Tolliver. I remember our having a blue ground with a white spot both alike. I've got a bit in the bed quilt now, and if you would but go and see Sister Clegg, and persuade her to make it up with Tulliver. I should take it very kind of you. You was always a good sister to me. But the right thing would be for Tulliver to go and make it up with her himself, and say he was sorry for speaking so rash. If he's borrowed money of her, he shouldn't be above that, said Mrs. Poulet, whose partiality did not blind her to principles. She did not forget what was due to people in of independent fortune. It's no use talking o' that, said poor Mrs. Tulliver almost peevishly. If I was to go down on my bare knees on a gravel to Tulliver, he'll never humble himself. Well, you can't expect me to persuade Jane to beg pardon, said Mrs. Poulet. Her temper is beyond everything. It's well if it doesn't carry her off her mind, though there never was any of our family went to a madhouse. I'm not thinking of her begging pardon, said Mrs. Tulliver, but if she just take no notice and not call her money in, as it's not so much for one sister to ask of another, time ud men things and Tulliver ud forget all about it and they'll be friends again. Mrs. Tulliver, you perceived, was not aware of her husband's irrevocable determination to pay in the five hundred pounds. At least such a determination exceeded her powers of belief. Well, Bessie, said Mrs. Poulet mournfully, I 
I don't want to help you on to ruin. I won't be behind handed doing you a good turn. If it is to be done. And I don't like it said among acquaintance as we've got cause in the family. I shall tell Jane that, and I don't mind giving driving to Jane's tomorrow if Mr. Poulet doesn't mind. What do you say, Mr. Poulet? I've no objections, said Mr. Poulet, who was perfectly contented with any course the quarrel might take so that Mr. Tulliver did not apply to him for money. Mr. Poulet was nervous about his investments and did not see how a man could have any security for his money unless he turned it into land. After a little further discussion as to whether it would not be better for Mrs. Tulliver to accompany them on a visit to Sister Clegg, Miss Poulet, observing that it was tea time, turned to reach from a drawer a delicate damask napkin which she pinned before her in the fashion of an apron. The door did, in fact, soon open, but instead of the tea tray, Sally introduced an object so startling that both Mrs. Poulet and Mrs. Tulliver gave a scream, causing Uncle Poulet to swallow his lozenge for the fifth time in his life, as he afterward noted. End of Book One, Chapter Nine. Recording by Daisy Fifty Five. The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot.